Hello and welcome to another episode of Scottish Independence Podcasts. This next edition, I think it's a really interesting one. We're talking to Alf Baird, basically talking about the material he covers in his book, which is called Dunhodden. Dunhodden being Scots for kept down, suppressed, depressed. If you think back to 2014, where 45% of us voted yes, and then think of everything that's happened since then. So one Conservative government after another being elected to rule Britain, but not elected by Scots. Political party whose values are way, way different from ours. And then Brexit. And now, you know, a Secretary of State for Scotland, who, to be frank, I mean, acts as if he's a Governor General and he can just, you know, do what he wants. All of that's happening, but the polls for support for yes, they've gone up from 45 to 50, but they're still hovering about 50. So why is that? What Alf has been thinking about is other other reasons that are more embedded in how we think about ourselves. The majority of people in that vote would have been Scottish-born folk like us. We know that there are people who weren't born in Scotland who were part of the vote. We know some of them voted yes, some of them voted no. We know that there's been a big increase in the vote from no to yes amongst EU citizens, for example, people who disagreed with Brexit. So it's not just one homogenous population. Exactly. You know, where his research really seemed to be appropriate was at that group of no voting Scots. That's what the discussion is. We don't necessarily agree with everything that he came up with. So we do. There's a couple of bits where, you know, the actual figures have perhaps moved on from when he wrote the book as well. So where that's that's the case, we've we've tried to add more recent resources. We'll link to all the sources that we could find and there's some very interesting ones that we came up with. Have a look yourselves and see what you think. Alf, thanks so much for coming back. We've talked to you a couple of times before, but this is going to be on a a new topic to us. You've written um, a book called Dunhodden. It's quite a substantial bit of work, must have taken you a while to get that all together. What made you start on that project? It was the referendum what done it. (laughs) As it happened, I I retired uh, just after the the referendum and I was trying to probe a little bit deeper into what uh, independence was really about and also about why people voted in different ways. A lot of my research in over 30 odd years has been developing theoretical frameworks to explain what we might call complex phenomena. So a complex issue. Is Scottish independence a complex issue? The politicians all say it's about this, it's about that. Politicians never actually discuss the things that uh, I found extremely important here, like culture and language. Before we get to the nitty-gritty of the constitutional matters, like the treaty self-determination process, we also have institutions uh, which are very central to to this. So so there's quite a large number of of issues. But it comes back to this, what do we mean by independence? You know, why is Scotland not an independent country? Why should it be independent? And what I was trying to discover, what are the main barriers to independence? And and also in this, I was pushed towards what we call environmental conditioning. Part of my research and teaching has been in behavioral sciences, behavioral studies, organizational behavior, as we used to call it. So it's about uh, psychology and these other aspects. So from this, we could try to develop the real determinants of independence. And from this, I developed a theoretical framework, which is the basis of the book, uh, Dunhodden. Yeah. At the end of that is the outcome of 
independence, yeah. which is is the the reclaiming of culture, language, yeah. ethnicity, yeah. Uh, and other aspects that yeah. have to be dealt with in any liberated independent country. So yeah. it, it's actually you're changing quite a lot of fundamentals in independence. I have read the Dan Hoden book. You know, I think about independence as independence to do something, independence to be able to uh, to enable something to happen that can't at the moment. I mean, is it fair to say that the Dun Hoden analysis model is is shining more light on independence from the things that are holding us back at the moment? Yeah, well, Dun Hoden is the Scots word uh, term for oppressed. The Scots language is, is is central in the book as well. I make the point that the Scots language, and I make a, a lot of statements in Scots, in the, the old Scots language, or the Scots we speak every day, uh, for want of a better term. We speak it every day, but we're deprived of learning it. And that's a central feature in colonial societies. Uh, people are deprived of learning the language. Remember, Gaelic was destroyed in Scotland. That wasn't an accident. <laughs> that actually happened. It, the yeah. Gaelic-speaking community, there, were, uh, there was over a third of Scots spoke Gaelic in the 1700s, and that was destroyed. The Scots language has been discarded, diminished, and uh, since then it's not been taught, it's not been valued, and this is a, a typical colonial procedure. It's about putting in place a superior language, a superior culture, and this also played out in every single British Empire outpost <laughs> from India to Kenya to, to Ireland to, to Scotland. Uh, English studies is a central feature. We value it very highly. It's, it, every school teacher has to have English higher. Nay Scots is needed. So you end up um, valuing that uh, language. In colonialism, we have to remember that uh, colonialism leads to a psychological condition <laughs> imposed on a people. It's it's called the colonial mindset. We call it the Scottish cultural cringe. The Scots are so inventive. We invented our own our own terminology for what is actually called internalised racism in the wider psychological literature or appropriated racial oppression. So this colonial mindset uh, leads to these stereotypes of the Scots. We hold them ourselves, but we're also reminded of them all the time, which are always negative, of course. Fundamentally, colonialism is just economic plunder. That's the main function of colonialism, but it's done politically, obviously, external political control, but it's done culturally. It's actually done by debasing a people, a culture, their language, their way of doing things. It's making them inferior and invalid and then making them believe that. And that's what creates, essentially, the Scots no voter. Just to clarify something, so there's a colonial mindset. So having read that, it's a pretty convincing bit of writing that's in there about that. And there's also whether Scotland actually is a colony. So mm. as I understand it, your position is Scotland is not a colony in the way that that's defined in the world. It does have a colonial mindset <laughs> because we've been treated like one. Yeah, yeah. This question of whether Scotland is or is not a colony comes up a lot from the Supreme Court stating boldly that we're not. On the other hand, I have heard people declare equally confidently that Scotland is a colony. Well, let's just have a look at what the UN definition is of a colony. According to the UN website, non-self-governing territories are those territories whose people have not yet attained a full measure of self-government. So far, so good. That sounds a bit like us. But when you have a look at the map, all those territories in the yellow boxes are non-self-governing territories, according to the United Nations. There's only 17 of them left. Now, like it or not, Scotland is in a union, which is one of those 
administering powers. We are colonizers, not a colony, according to that definition. In terms of what options does a non-self-governing territory have when deciding its future status, there were three original definitions, which were emergence as a sovereign independent state, free association with an independent state, or integration with an independent state. And they then added a more catch-all provision, emergence into any other political status freely determined by a people. So I think Scotland's problem is that we did have that referendum. We freely entered into it. The decision was made to remain in union with the rest of the UK. So even if we did have non-self-governing territory status, and and that's by no means an uncontroversial statement, the fact that we then freely chose to stay in that union seems to be a pretty difficult barrier for us to get over. However, these things are never black and white. Well, I think there's a a difference between Scotland's uh, status constitutionally and uh, Scotland's status socially and culturally Mm. and politically. Colonialism is essentially just three elements. It's it's external political control. I mean, that is is a fact. Westminster runs Scotland by virtue of any preponderance of MPs outside Scotland can do anything they want with Scotland, largely. But the, the main function is economic exploitation. And uh, this is uh, where people have no control over the land, resources, assets. We know this from oil and gas. We also know this in all other respects. We we can see it from renewables. I mean, I've just been involved in a calculation which shows that by 2030, Scotland will be selling renewable energy worth in retail prices about 60 billion a year. That is equivalent to the entire Holyrood budget. What it also means is if, if I've been calculating Scotland's trade, export trading, if you include that renewables, oil and gas, aquaculture, fish, whiskey, aggregates, all the other aspects, you're well in excess of £100 billion a year. That is almost one third of the UK's export trade value. Now, Scotland has only 10% of the population, but about one third of the UK's trade value. Scotland also imports about £100 billion, so it has a fairly balanced trade position. The rest of the UK has a, a trade export of about 370 billion, but imports have doubled that. So it has an enormous trade imbalance. Scotland is enormously rich in all these respects. So it's really about economic plunder. Yes, it's also about us believing that as well, isn't it? Because when yep. you talk to anybody now currently about independence, it always seems to come back to that economic question. And yet, I have no difficulty accepting what you've just said and yeah. thinking, woohoo, we're going to be fine. And yet that doesn't seem to be the response well, that you get. Some, some people behind the scenes now working, including myself, as, as I mean, my area was, was, uh, was, was maritime business, global yeah. trade. <laughs> that was my research, you know, container ships going around the world was my PhD. So I got a handle on world trade. And in fact, most of my research took me around the world to former colonies like Dubai, like Malta, like Singapore, like Hong Kong, Panama. <laughs> you know, there's hundreds of places around the world that were exploited. Uh, yeah. The first thing they did, of course, after after decolonization was to develop their seaports, which were left in a, a bit yeah. a boosted, and also to reorientate their trade away from Britain, away from mm-hmm. London. Now, this is the problem Scotland faces, is we have to do what Ireland's done and what Australia, New Zealand and other former colonies did years ago, Canada, to reorientate their trade away to Europe, to to Asia, to Africa, and and stop selling or letting Britain or London buy all your trade cheap. All our trade is taken out cheap. 
renewables, oil and gas, even yeah. whiskey, aggregates, yeah. the whole agriculture, everything is taken out by London-based entities, whether it's retailers. And all these entities acquired Scottish businesses over the last century. They yeah. acquired Scottish yeah. industry. Scottish industries were either first nationalized as well and then privatized. So other ports, airports, utilities were sold off by London, now owned by Cayman Island, offshore equity funds that just exploit Scotland, including all these grouse estates that are just speculative ventures that do nothing with the land. So Scotland is just a little bit of a big asset play for the London financial institutions. And that really is corporate colonialism. Yeah, yeah. We, we, have, we have no uh, control over our resources in that sense. So this is but, where the other colonies had to reorientate the trade away from London. Yes, and, and they've done it. I mean, Ireland's done that incredibly successfully. I'm sure yeah. others have as well. And, and I mean, that sort of overwhelmingly positive economic kind of argument for us being independent, yet still doesn't quite cut through. You'd think we would be more than 50, 51, 52% yes, yes at the moment. So that presumably then just takes you back to that other question, which is why not? And yeah. Also, we get into areas of of population movements. And if you look at Scotland's population history since the Union, since 1707, we have seen almost 4 million Scots moved out. And since the Victorian times, particularly the inflow of a meritocratic elite from England. Who would that be in practice? Well, all the professional and managerial institutions <laughs> advertise all the best jobs in Scotland in the metropolitan capital. Okay. This was the same for, for, for Algeria. All the best jobs were advertised in Paris. The same for Estonia and Ukraine. All the best jobs advertised in Moscow. Moscow, the, yeah. The, the same for Scotland and Ireland and Wales. All the best jobs advertised in London. So you end up bringing in a meritocratic elite. And you also create your own native elite. And this is what I found very interesting in studies of post-colonialism, is that colonialism is always a cooperative venture with native elites. And the native elites align with the culture of the colonizer. They align with the values of the colonizer. And only the values of the colonizer are sovereign in a colony. <laughs> so we see this in our private schools, basically. We see the segregation. We see the divide. And we see the values coming through in the privileged groups within the native society, but also the privileged groups coming in from the metropolitan capital, taking the best jobs. And this is why in colonialism, uh, the, the, the elite are always described as, as mediocre. The mediocre meritocracy is largely because they're drawn from a narrow stream. You know, 50% mm -hmm. of all the top jobs in Scotland are, are held by the 3% that go to private schools. I read that and went, what? Surely not. If we'd been talking about, oh, I don't know, hundred years ago, I might have thought, well, maybe it probably did. But I must say, I am really surprised about that. I mean, I, I assume you're right in saying it. I, I didn't. Well, that was a, that was a study by a lay, former Labour MP in, in the Equalities Commission, and it was called Elitist Scotland. We dug out the report that Alice just mentioned, and we'll put the link to it in the notes below. It does show that there are a disproportionate number of people at the top of Scottish institutions that have come from that privately educated background. What it doesn't tell us is the nationality of those people. We don't know if they're Scottish born or if they have moved up from London, as Alf suggested. The conclusion that the report reaches is that the top of Scottish society is significantly unrepresentative of the Scottish population as a whole. 
with over a quarter of those professions they looked at educated privately, compared to just 5% of the Scottish population as a whole, with almost two-thirds having attended an elite UK university. The report also gives a breakdown for the different professions. 57% of university principals were privately educated, 45% of sheriffs and senior judges, 32% of editors and columnists in the media. 20% of MSPs attended private school either in Scotland or in the rest of the UK. Interesting though that of our 56 MPs, only 5% of them were educated privately and that's the same as the population as a whole. And just a final thought on the question of privately educated people. I live very close to one of the major Scottish private schools. And I know quite a few people who have been there. I don't know that it necessarily gives you a better education than a state school. But what you do get is a much better offering of extracurricular activities. But more than anything else, what they come out with is connections and confidence. If we could instill that in our state schools, I wonder if that might go some way towards removing the the cultural cringe that Alf describes they found there is an an elitist group that go to the private schools, they go to the elite ancient universities, and and, and it's certain categories of of professions like the law, like civil service, uh, and so on. But So we have the native elite that's fully in tune with the union, if you like. They benefit from the union. They are the most pampered group in the society uh, amongst the native group. There's actually a term for them in colonialism. It's called the watchdogs of colonialism. (laughs) And these are the people most likely to reject independence and hold it back. And this is why one of the chapters in the book and one of the parts of the framework is institutions. One of the things that we were hoping out of this discussion is to, to get an idea of, so how do we tackle these things? How do we move ourselves forward? Trying to think about institutions and their recruitment practices and what they're paid for as well, where they get their funding from and everything. And I thought, I don't know how in practice you actually could change the direction of that. Perhaps give the institution itself a specific remit that says you must, by law, promote the Scots language, say, or you must, by law, ensure that our history is visible and taught. But is that something that would have to or could come up through our parliament? Or is it outside of that? I'm not sure how we would start. Yeah, well, I I think an equal society is quite an aspiration. But Mm -hmm. in a colonial society, it's it's a kind of forlorn hope. My own case was interesting because in, in my late 20s, I, I applied to do law at Edinburgh University. And I had studied for a, a year at college, further education college, re, uh, obtaining the required entry qualifications, including studying Scots law, the Scots legal situation. So I was very interested in constitutional law, as, as, as you can see, obviously, the treaty and everything. But uh, so my application was made and I, I met the head of the faculty, actually. But he said that he refused my application on the basis that he thought I wouldn't make a good lawyer. <laughs> that was his words to me. <laughs> but I found out soon after that all the intake was largely from private schools. And that wasn't my background. I come from a you know, council house background, state school, manual work to begin with, then into shipping and so on, and then, and then self-educated to some extent before I went to university to do my first degree, and then yeah. a PhD, and then other things. But the, essentially, I was excluded 
from my own hometown university because I never went to a private school. And that I got that also from somebody who, who's in the know, as it were. And presumably that was because you were trying to get into the law faculty, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm from, I'm from exactly the same background as you and, and didn't have any difficulty getting into, into Edinburgh University to study chemistry. The, the folk who were there who had actually been brought up in Edinburgh asked questions like, what school did you go to? So if you're like me and you, you came from Cooper, there was only one school you could go to, you know. So I, I, I would go, oh, so I, I did notice that. But one of the things I did find out about universities after that in the study research for the book was in, a, in quite a detailed analysis of a lot of departments at the ancient universities. And this was partly because I'd, I taught at some of them as well on an ad hoc basis. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't my institution, but I did teach at some of them. But the academics there were largely not Scots not Scottish. 90% of the academics at, at many departments in Edinburgh and Aberdeen and St Andrews are not Scottish. Only 10%, I found, 10 or 11%. And I found some departments at some universities, ancient universities, and even others, <laughs> where there was no Scottish academics at them. These universities are working as international businesses, selling high-value degrees globally, bringing in the elites, the, the wealthy elites, uh, to get their high-status degrees in Scotland and Britain out of the ancient yeah. universities. And they're going for the money. And the amount of PhDs uh, I, I found in Scotland by Scots is just minuscule compared to, it's probably well over 90% of the PhDs. And that's your future academics are not Scottish. And quite yeah, often when yeah. they graduate, the first job they get is the university as a researcher. We're not lifting up our own folk. But I think it must be very different across different subjects. Because again, in the chemistry department in Edinburgh in the 70s, you know, most of us were Scottish. Some of yeah. them went to a wee posh school in Edinburgh somewhere, yeah. but most of us were Scottish. And those of us that stayed on that did PhDs and what have are still Scottish. And yeah, other people came in quite usefully for me because I got to know one of them from Birmingham and, and, you know, we ended up marrying each other. But And then I insisted that we stay in Scotland. So, you know. We listen to the media every day, the radio, the TV, and you'll see people interviewed also in, in Hollywood committees <laughs> that are quite often experts in their field, and they're from Scottish institutions, but they're not Scottish. As someone who taught in Norway, I taught in Norway every summer, my own module at university there, it was 90% Norwegian, 10% others. You know, it was a different, it was a complete opposite. We are 10% of the academic cohort in some of these institutions. Is that not fair enough? I mean, given that we're 8% of the UK population, we are where we are in, you know, in a voluntary union. So is it a surprise? I worked a lot in European projects with collaborative universities across Europe and they were often saying, do you not have any academics? It's called Scottish academics. Scottish and academics. The, and the problem you have when you import an academic population is quite often they do academic research on their own country. And I'm not just talking about UK, I'm talking about internationally. I had researchers doing you know, work on their homeland, whether it's China, India, Libya. Yeah. None yeah. of them were doing research on Scotland. Yeah. I mean, I personally don't see anything wrong with having a mixed population. So you're actually giving the best education at that institution well, as you can. Well, that's the question. But Hmm. Are you giving the best? Because if you factor this into economic growth, you don't see economic growth. You can say you've got the world-class universities, and they all do that, but where is the economic growth? And where is the uh, poverty reduction? Half of Scottish people live in or close to poverty. 
Mm. But we've got world-class universities that employ people from around the world and they teach people from around the world, but they exclude Scots. We're not convinced that the position is quite as bad as that. Back in 2016, Audit Scotland reported the university student body for 2014-15 was 66% Scottish. And there is definitely some variation between institutions. And in 2019, it was reported that the University of Edinburgh is made up of 33% of Scottish students. St Andrews is 32%. But Glasgow, Dundee, Strathclyde and Aberdeen, the totals were 65%, 73%, 85%, 70% and 59%. And the ScotGov website in January 2023 reported that a record 183,000 Scottish students had studied at Scottish universities in the year 2021 to 22. Can you really use the argument that Scots are being excluded from Scottish universities when you know, we have the such a high proportion of people in Scotland well, who've got tertiary education. The stat you here quoted is we have the highest qualified population in Europe. As I say, that doesn't work into economic growth. We tend, you yeah, know, that's true. Ireland's yeah. racing ahead. We're just we've been yeah. static for yeah. you know, and and through deindustrialization, through everything <laughs> since the 1970s. I mean, I was an economic migrant. Myself, in the, when Thatcher came in, uh, I, like many thousands of Scots, were taking a bus from George Square in Glasgow and going to work in building sites in Germany and Spain. There was nothing in Scotland. Deindustrialization just left a wasteland. What I'm saying to you is, is the universities are not the cause of that, but they're part of the problem. Yes, okay. Uh, and yeah. and they, 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 are, they, are, they operate as, as private fiefdoms. Fair enough that they are high-class universities and other people want to come here to study. But it seems to me you're saying that if they had more of a, a sense of their purpose and how that fits into what Scotland's needs more generally, and that can be economic, but it can also, of course, be cultural, that, that would be a step in the right direction, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think if you can look at universities also and look at the what is the biggest issue facing our society today. It's, it's, it's independence, <laughs> you know, the biggest political issue. And there's nothing come out of the universities apart from some political uh, studies. You get no real research from the universities on Scotland as a nation. And this goes back to what I was saying about academics from outside Scotland don't know anything about Scotland. They don't know about the culture. They don't know about the people. And they end up doing research on their own country or on their own issue, which not, doesn't necessarily apply to us. And it doesn't help our situation, whether it's politically or economic or socially or culturally. We're we, we out of the game. We've become observers. So could we yeah. do anything that would put an additional duty on our universities to do something? Or are they completely self, like you, did you say, little fiefdoms? I think that, that, again, Yeah, corporate remember. fiefdoms. They're corporate mm. fiefdoms. Bear in mind also that they are protected forever under the Treaty of Union. That actually says it in them. The universities are protected forever. Fair enough, but that also is, I mean, that's a two-way door, isn't it? Yeah, but what I'm saying is, 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 is Scotland has actually lost them. They're basically international businesses trading as, they're trading as international businesses. And as I said to you, Audit Scotland have recently found in the last few years that Scottish students are getting less and less opportunities at the, the, the elite universities. Bear in mind also that if the fee for medicine and other things, it's way over above 30,000 a year. And if you're doing five or four or five, six year, whatever degree at 30,000 a year, that's a big generator of money. What most colonies did actually post-independence was create a national university. 
But I mean, were they in a position where they had any universities or, or ones that well, were? I mean, they, where, they, where, might, where they might not have had. They might not have had. I mean, I've, I worked for 25, more than 25 years at one university at Napier, uh, which was a new university. Yeah, yeah. It was a polytechnic before. Exactly. But I've dealt with quite a lot of institutions around the world that are national universities, national universities, Singapore, for example. And they have a remit to lift up their people. Yeah. They're not about educating the world necessarily. Uh, our universities think their job is to educate the world. But that's not a national university. That's an international thing. So it almost sounds like an imperial thing, Alf. Well, it is an imperial <laughs> thing. What we have in Scotland now, of course, is very much focus on multiculturalism and, and, and prioritising minorities. But what we forget and what I, I point out in the book is that the Scots are a minority in Britain. The Scots are an ethnic minority group in the UK. And we ignore that. And ethnicity is very important here, although the SNP say that, you know, ethnicity is, we shouldn't dwell on it. But um, uh, the solidarity of an oppressed ethnic group is the basis of any independence movement. And most of the, the, the people marching for independence and voting for independence are the Scots-speaking community, largely. It goes yeah, back I, to the issue of national consciousness, but uh, we can get into that. Yeah, maybe. you know, what kind of society we want to be part of as well. I do get a bit nervous when we start talking as if we're excluding somebody who's not Scottish enough for, yeah. the, for our requirements. <laughs> because, I mean, if you just listen to the three of us, all three of us were born in Scotland. All three of us want Scottish independence. Mm. All three of us have got different accents, depending oh, on what right. route we've taken yeah. through life. And we're, all but, speaking, and we're all speaking English, at least just now. we're all speaking English, <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's called the, the torture of colonial bilingualism. But that's another area. But I, I, give, you, I give you an example myself of, of my ethnic discrimination and ethnic oppression within my own, my own city, never mind my own land. <laughs> but but uh, there's many examples. And, 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 and Jimmy Reid classified this as a form of alienation as well. The ethnic stereotypes prevail in a colonial society. The Scots ethnic stereotypes about language, and there is a language divide here that's very, very important, and that is the same in any colonial society. It doesn't matter where it is. Uh, but the, the issue about this is also is that discrimination becomes institutionalized, becomes normalized, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and there are health impacts of this. Colonial society has two cultures. It's built on social linguistic prejudice, and it's an educational divide as well. But it becomes institutionalized. Institutionalized racism is prevalent. Even the police recently admitted that. But within a, within a minority oppressed group like the Scots currently held within the union largely against our democratic will uh, in many respects, that is also a further form of, of oppression. But essentially the cultural and psychological impacts of this are, are quite, uh, yeah. quite extensive, including social inequalities, poverty, uh, the alienation, the lacking of confidence, the health issues, the depression and so on that comes mm -hmm. with these other aspects, and even Sir Harry Burns, the former chief medical officer, described Scotland's communities in deindustrialization and other aspects as being like a, an Aborigine people divorced from their culture. And yet, when I read what you're saying about language, and for example, one of the reasons I don't have more of a Fife accent than I do, but when I was primary school, my mum, who is no snob, but she sent me to elocution lessons because she didn't want me to have a Fife accent. She wasn't from Fife herself. She's got a very nice Montrose kind of barb. But anyway, so that kind of thing was part and parcel of um, you don't really want to have a broad, too broad Scots and accent because mm. if you're looking for a job later on, that probably isn't going to help. So, and, and as I say, in, in that side of my family, that, that really wasn't about snobbishness, but it was really just 
practicality. And that happened then, to maybe to some extent it, it still does. But I think I, I just bulked a bit. Tell me if I picked it up wrong. But so on the one hand, you're talking about people who, who can speak Scots. So there's the people who can speak Scots to some extent. I mean, I don't speak it very much, but I certainly understand it from, from my grandparents, whom I spent a lot of time with. They were from Brechin. People who can, who can speak Scots. And then, well, you use the word Anglophone, which just means speaking English. So I speak English. There's no doubt about that. And so yet, it's just almost everybody time, in the world. It's a lingua exactly, franca now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's lingua franca. So actually, that's an advantage. But also, mm-hmm. I've been in, sitting in a cafe in Adelaide and, you know, on the bus into the Auckland from the airport. And even once a, a wee stall at, up a hill at the back of Kalimpong in Sikkim and people saying to me, oh, you're Scottish, aren't you? Which part of Scotland are you from? So there's this immediate, it's English, but, you know, worldwide, I would say, because it's happened to me all over the world. People come up and say, I couldn't help but notice you've got a Scottish accent. Which part of Scotland are you from? So I just wonder if you don't, kind of ignore that that experience too much in because i see that as an advantage well if, if you compare us with other european nations uh, in iceland and in, in norway sweden finland holland so on they teach english and they teach the the mother tongue as well mm-hmm. so th- th- this is very important because it's the mother tongue that gives you your identity largely so the mixing of culture and language is what gives us our identity and this is where cultural linguistic imperialism is so important it's about changing your identity and yeah in colonial terms we do what's called mimicking the colonizer it's two tongues in conflict in colonialism terms uh, one tongue is least values valued has no stature it's made uh, inferior it's discarded so it's discriminated against it's not taught the scots language isn't taught in the schools to the bairns <laughs> so they, they, they didn't ken, they've got their own rich mother tongue, as, as Billy Kay would say. And language, remember, is the means humans claim diversity and define their identity. It, it also is what defines and unites the nation. Uh, so it's very, very important. It's a crucial and integral part of Scottish culture and identity. Do, do you think then that if I'm in, you know, I don't know, Auckland or something, I hear someone talking English with a Scottish accent, I have an immediate sense of connection with that person just as much as I would actually if I heard them if I happened to hear them talking broad Scots only that isn't really very likely to happen so well, I think it's what, not what, like there, aren't, there yeah. isn't a connection there what postcolonial theory tells us is that, and also the world of self-determination and decolonization is that peoples in self-determination conflict are always linguistically divided whether that's Catalan and Spain whether that's Francophone Anglophone in Quebec whether that's Scots and English in, in, in here, or whether it's anywhere else, Libyan and French, or Algerian and French, uh, Indian and English, Russian and Ukraine. <laughs> and a lot of the Ukraine issues at the moment are largely to do with linguistic oppression uh, as well. So language is very, very central feature of this, but the, the, the reality is in the society we have is that the Scots language isn't taught. There's been a language act recently given uh, for, for Gaelic, but yeah. Gaelic was largely destroyed, as we discussed earlier on. And why was it destroyed? How was it destroyed? We know how it was destroyed. And, and this goes back to what in, in linguistic imperialism is called linguicide, the death mm-hmm. of a language, which is usually intentional, was always intentional. But if you stop people speaking and, or, or learning their language, it will eventually die. 
And it's about changing an identity. And this is, gets to the root of the yes, no vote, which okay. is even the Edinburgh University list, post-referendum study showed it's either do you feel mere Scottish or mere British? And that's what it came down to for most people. And this is where linguistic and cultural imperialism have a critical role because it changes people's identity. Of Scottish born voters in 2014, 52% had said yes. And that kind of backs up a little bit what you're saying, although it also suggests that there's 48% who said no. That's not enough to have 52% of Scots born voters because the electorate is much wider than that. 48% saying no is, is a huge problem if we're trying to create a new country. So, given that they're all likely to be the same kind of ethnic group, how do your models start to tackle that 48% who well, post, are so suffering from the cringe yeah. that they say no? Yeah, post-colonial theory tells us that, yeah, there is a colonial condition. It's a psychological mm -hmm. condition. And it's based on what we were talking about, the stereotypes and the discrimination against uh, indigenous language. So, yeah, people then conform to, to the culture and, and assimilate. And that's yeah. where we get colonial or cultural assimilation. And as, as Marlene says, we're, we're taught by our parents, or oh, speak proper English, you'll not get on if you didn't. People have to understand the basic fundamentals of this condition. It's not a natural condition. The colonized or the oppressed people are manufactured. They're made into that, that person. And that is the environmental condition. You know, this anglophone education we have it makes us want to be british this bbc we have this constant british the symbols the imperial you know everything about britain is about assimilation and, and professor michael hector defined it scots and irish and welsh as basically internal colonization but you still have this meritocratic elite that comes through and has only the the culture of of the, the superior uh, the superior culture, the colonizer, basically. And that, that, that um, research that was done, the Edinburgh University research, mm -hmm. cause you, it was one of the references you gave, which I had a wee look at it. And yeah. I mean, I know it was from, it's from a while back now. I think it, the figures were done, were taken in 2006. So mm -hmm. it is a while back. But people who felt Scottish and British was about a third of their sample. The ones who felt British but not Scottish was only 10%. And Scottish, but not British, was 51%. I think there was another, there's another 6% six, six that did, didn't know either way, other yeah. than the other. And, and there's a comparison there with um, what, what the corresponding figures were in Wales and Northern Ireland. Mm. I can't remember the Northern Ireland ones, but the, the Welsh ones were, I think, in Scotland it was 51% who were Scottish, but not British. With Welsh it was... 33% that were Welsh but not British. So that's 2006, you know, getting on for 20 years back. I'm sure that those figures are much higher now. I bet they were much higher in 2014. But that still didn't transfer into a, a yes vote, doesn't it? Which is kind of what we're all after. That's that's the whole point of, yeah, of this kind I, of thing. Well, well, my argument would be that uh, after the research I've done, which is which is totally different from the, 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 the typical political economic kind that's been done in the institutions, this is much more behavioural, is that people have to understand their condition. If you don't, it's like a medical condition. You, if you don't understand the condition, you won't know the remedy yeah. and what I found in colonial post-colonial theory tells you once you understand your condition 
you find the remedy, which is only one remedy, is liberation. How does that work then? And if you well, if what it, it is is somebody who's successfully done it. Yeah. How, how what we that? what we have also is we have all the characteristics of the post-colonial or decolonization template, where the dominant national party throws in its lot with the colonial power, and becomes a colonial administration, and that's what Holyrood has essentially become. It is part of the UK. Well, it's a creation of the of Westminster, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a national government in any real meaningful sense. Mm -hmm. and what they do is they, they actually feather their nests, they delay independence, they take the movement up blind alleys, they create the rupture in the movement. This delay is what causes problems. It's, do you think is, that's consciously been done? It's what the template tells us. All the post-colonial theories tell you that the dominant national party that the people have put their faith in takes them up a blind alley, delays independence, and creates the conditions for conflict. And this is the worry. They are delaying independence, especially when we had 56 MPs in 2015 that could have done so much more with that mandate and subsequent mm -hmm. mandates, but they've not done anything. And that's what's created the rupture in the movement. And yeah, you get new parties being created for independence. Mm -hmm. And what is actually the basis behind it is the National Party has never done a reasoned analysis of colonial society. It has a rudimentary understanding. And therefore, the people have a rudimentary understanding. They still don't know what independence means. They still yeah, don't know yeah. why it's necessary. Independence is about decolonization. That's what the UN tell us. Independence, self-determination, independence is decolonization. Yeah, and that okay. means that, that you are under some form of oppression. That's fair. I'm, I'm not arguing about us being under some form of oppression, but I, I suppose I just have difficulty going with your argument when it seems to be certainly based on what's happened on colonies, some part, whether they're British colonies or French colonies or, or, or whatever, striving for their own independence and if, the, uh, if there's evidence there that in the process of doing that their own colony's national party can end up accommodating itself to the colonial power whether that's France or, or us or, or whatever. So you then say that's what the SNP has done, is doing right now but I can't, I don't see the evidence of that, I mean, apart from saying because it happens in colonial situations and we're in a colonial kind of situation, that'll be what's happening. But the SNP got themselves into a majority government, what, 2011 was it? 2014, we, we had the referendum. So that's not an example of a party that was accommodating itself to the establishment. And yeah, 2015, that a massive, that was the Westminster lesson, we ended up with a massive number of MPs that could something could have happened that but then the next year there was Brexit so it's a bit of an old quote you know events dear boy events but actually Brexit just turned everything on its head Brexit happened and then that went on for so long and then there was a bit of a dip in I think the next Westminster uh, Westminster station we still had an awful lot more MPs than we'd ever had but it was always spun as oh such a decline and then you get the awful Brexit arrangement that we have and then you get and then you get COVID and I'm, I'm not sitting here being an apologist for the SNP but I, I do think that there's some you haven't you haven't quite convinced me that they're quite in the pocket of Westminster and the establishment as you're saying they are. Uh, all I'm saying is, is what post-colonial theory tells us, whether it's yes. Franz Fanon, Albert Memmi, yep. whoever. But you're not so, taking into account that we're not a colony. 
So, I mean, we are in a different yeah, and, situation. And also, we voted no as well. That's the other we thing. That's no. the, the, I think that's the real sticking... 56 MPs is, was de facto independent. In any, in any former colony, that would have been independent. We've had violations to the treaty ongoing. Brexit being one, the Northern mm -hmm. Ireland backstop being another. These are violations to the treaty. But what I would say is, is that the National Party in government hasn't behaved like a nationalist government. It hasn't developed Scotland as it could. You know, the selling of all the renewables leases, it's not contested uh, Westminster decisions on different things. It's not developed its own trading links post-Brexit. It could have developed serious ports and shipping connections, which I've been advocating. It's not done that. It's not done many different things that it could have done which Westminster uh, might have objected to, but lawfully that uh, they couldn't really do much about. So it's not gone out of its way <laughs> to upset the colonial power. It's on the contrary, it's actually become, in colonial terms, part of the racket and part of the hoax. Because remember, colonialism is a hoax. Remember also that the union was a hoax, is a hoax, was subject to bribery. Uh, and people were enslaved because Scotland was purchased uh, at the time of the Union. Scotland was effectively purchased. And this brings us into the, the notion that colonialism is an enslavement of a people. It's exploitation of their resources and destruction or the obliteration of their cultures and languages. And that is part of it. Yeah, so yeah. if you want to see the destruction, if you value diversity of peoples, you protect languages and protect cultures. You don't destroy them. And what we have is willful destruction of, of Scottish culture, Scottish identity. We had it with Gaelic. We're seeing it now with Scots. We're seeing the, well, the economic plunder of resources. Now it was oil and gas. It, previously it was other things. Now it's renewables. We're, and these are very, very big numbers. Very big numbers. Uh, 60 billion income a year, potentially, uh, from renewables alone. And Scotland has, an, as I said before, a, a good trade balance a good trade balance. England has a terrible trade imbalance. Yeah. 50% yeah. yeah. exports, you know, it, it, it's just not sustainable. Whereas, and that's why they keep Scotland. Essentially, it's just plunder. And that is always what colonialism was about. Going back to your, to your examples of how countries got themselves out of that, setting aside the fact that we actually did have a democratic event which resulted in the no vote, which I, think, I still think is a big problem for us to get over legally. How did those countries, what, what was the thing that helped them move from that colonial mindset outwards? Because if they all had the same kind of thing of a ruling party that became comfortable with the accommodating the establishment, what was it that got them over the line? Well, I think that, that was the other thing I mentioned about a better understanding of the condition. And we've not really had the condition explained Scotland's condition, <laughs> explained to people. Well, Historically, decolonization has been done in many different ways. Some nice, not some, many not so nice. Yeah. And, and a lot of this is to do with the imperial powers response to de even democratic votes and so on. What I would say about the vote in Scotland, of course, is remember that Scotland's people have been subject to colonialism for 300 years mm -hmm. or more. And this has an effect on the identity of the people. Any colonized people are a manufactured people. They're not the natural people they would have been without colonialism. They are completely different people 
uh, in many respects and, uh, and different thought processes, different behaviour as we see in the vote. What I would say about the UN sanction votes in, in recent decolonisation or self-determination processes is there is a, a better franchise that we could look at. Remember that Holyrood was imposed a local government franchise not a national franchise. The Scotland Act imposed a local government franchise. And that reflects London's view that Holyrood is a local. <laughs> it's a regional government at best. It's a wee pretendy parliament, according to Blair and all the rest. <laughs> so it's a parish council, I think he called it. But essentially, the franchise is a local government franchise. By that, do you mean the electorate? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what I mean is any resident, if you, anybody yeah, with an yeah. address in Scotland gets a vote on our sovereignty. And that is completely irregular globally. Is uh, it? Have you got any examples of other ways well, it's being if, if I lived in Ireland, I would never get a vote on a constitutional referendum. No. I would get a vote on national elections, but I wouldn't now get a vote on EU elections. Equally, if, if, if I lived in Norway, as I once did, or Germany, I wouldn't get a vote on a constitutional matter, whether Norway mm. could join, a, join the EU. or Essentially, what, uh, what that means is people with holiday homes, people with students, yeah. people coming in in the last couple of years uh, wouldn't get a vote. In the, the New Caledonia franchise, they had, uh, which was a UN-sanctioned franchise recently, they had secondary criteria which was agreed with the UN, which prevented people from, some groups from voting, that's people that wasn't their main residence in that country, that mm -hmm. was people that were, that were studying maybe, or people that didn't have their main economic activities in that country, and also new arrivals, recent arrivals within the last 10 years, didn't get a vote, and that took about 17 to 20% out of the vote. Yeah. You see, what Scotland has done uh, with the local government franchise for, for constitutional matters is, is not reciprocated anywhere. We had a look at what the franchise had been in a selection of recent independence referendums and there does appear to be a fair bit of variety between them. We'll put the link to the source document in the notes below this podcast. So first of all, Quebec in 1980 and 1995, their franchise was Canadian citizens resident in Quebec. Slovenia in 1990 was limited to Slovenian citizens based on their ID card. Lithuania had uh, the most complicated one, I think. Those persons who had the nationality of Lithuania before Soviet occupation and their descendants. USSR nationals legally resident in Lithuania who renounced their Soviet nationality during the period of two years since the law on nationality. The Soviet military and special services personnel were not considered as legally resident of Lithuania. But then Estonia and Latvia, in the same year, individuals with a permanent Soviet residence card. Uh, Macedonian citizens had internal citizenship provided under an ID card residing in Macedonia or abroad. That's another twist. Um, Ukraine in 1991, residents in Ukraine, also including Soviet soldiers, stationed in Ukraine. Bosnia-Herzegovina the following year. Yugoslavian citizens who had established their permanent residency in the country. 1999, East Timor, individuals born in East Timor, individuals not born but with a parent born, individuals whose spouse had been born in East Timor or whose parent-in-law was born in East Timor. So that's a kind of familial descent variation. And then Montenegro in 2006 had a minimum 24 months permanent residency condition as well as Montenegrin nationality. South Sudan, permanent residents or individuals whose parents or grandparents were permanent residents since 1956. So that's got a familial requirement as well as a length of residence. 
And then ours, Scotland in 2014, as we know, residents in Scotland with British nationality or EU or Commonwealth nationality. That, that is very broad compared to the ones we've just read out. And then Catalonia in 2014, residents with Spanish nationality, EU, EEA or Swiss. So again, theirs is probably closer to ours. It's a completely abnormal process and it's based on this idea of civic nationalism which mm -hmm. fails, fails, in my view, before independence. Civic nationalism is fine after independence. You know, you can have anybody you want applying to become a citizen, a citizen of Scotland after yeah, independence. Yeah. <laughs> That's because the, the point is Scotland at the moment can't issue its citizenship. Yeah. It doesn't have the power to offer citizenship. Civic nationalism is just, you know, it's an illusion in a country that doesn't have the power to offer its citizenship. And what we found is that most of the people from outside Scotland did two things in the referendum. The first thing they did is, is they voted to reject Scottish citizenship by voting no. And that's, that's rejecting Scottish citizenship because they didn't want it, obviously, by voting no. And the second thing they did was they deprived the Scots of their right to that mm. nationality. So, and that is, in my view, quite a difficult thing. People should have, in my view, remained neutral. Rather than deprive a people of their right to self-determination, the indigenous people I'm talking about, rather than deprive them, they shouldn't have stuck their oar in. We know that Scotland's yeah. a, a great welcoming society. We've always been. Mm. But did he deprive of, us, of our nationhood or, and yeah, our citizenship? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's a kind of xenophobic thing to do. How do we deal with that? If it, I mean, it doesn't look like a, a referendum in the way we've had one before is on the cards. And if we are going to go into the next, or whether it's a Hollywood election or a Westminster election and say, well, that's our plebiscite, that will have the franchise of those elections. So how would we get to the point where we could frame that sort of democratic choice in the terms that, that you're suggesting? What I get from post-colonial theory is that people's understanding has to be improved. And this can only be done through education. And what we see with the media and yourselves are a big part of that is the, the pro-independence bloggers, the media outlets like, like this, and others are a great ve uh, vehicle to, to deliver that improved education about matters as opposed to the, you know, the mainstream imperial <laughs> mainstream media, uh, which, which, which parrots the same message over and over again, and often with a big imbalance. You know, going back to your, your discussion with John Robertson, which I thought was great. But yeah, so the, the post-colonial, or the colonial, anti-colonial, if you like, bloggers and media outlets or pro-independence are like the radicals on street corners going back to decades past, providing literature to the people about their wretchedness, about their understanding about their condition. And remember that uh, although Hamza and others say their biggest priority is to get rid of uh, poverty, have a more equal society, in colonial societies, the poverty is broadly equivalent to the plunder that's being extracted. Yeah. And this means that you will never have an equal society or remove poverty, eradicate poverty, unless you liberate the people unless you clean out the system, because the colonial system is about profit, corporates. The corporate colonial and previously military machine worked very, very well globally. And that was the three dimensions, corporate, yeah. the colonial and the military. Fortunately, we're subject just to the two. <laughs> Although, as we know uh, from, previous, from recent maps and all the rest of it, Scotland was fortified 
after the Union. Yes. A absolutely. And a lot of towns we have were called after forts. Fort William and Augustus and all the George. Do you yeah. think that Scots are any are a, uh, an aberration from the norm of imperialism? Is to is to to live in sort of a you know a, a, not called cuckoo land, but it's a bit rose tinted to think that Scots are not subject to some force. And remember that colonialism is 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 force. It's defined as geographic violence. That's how it's defined. It's it's a force. One way or another, the 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 imperial power forces that entity into subjugation, into its, its subordinate's position. It's always outside of the room when fishery negotiations are being done in our name. You know, we, there is a dependency culture here as well. It's very paternalistic. We mm. depend on them. And a lot of people in the society think, well, they're doing a great job. We depend on them. What would it be like without them? <laughs> without London Rule? <laughs> well, every other colony's never looked back. You know? yeah. Absolutely every, thrived. Uh, but but we, we, we don't know. We, we think we're just, we're just sitting in the kitchen and we're, we're left out of things, but we're actually locked in the basement, chained up, <laughs> while all our bank accounts are getting fleeced. Apart from those few people who are quite happy with the situation because it's benefiting them in some way. Well, that's the bourgeoisie have a special place in post-colonial theory. I'm still not completely convinced by everything that's in Dune Hodden, but I am. There's huge overlap between what you're saying and, you know, I listened to it and, and read oh. a bit of it and I thought, I recognise that. A big part of the condition is denial. I don't think I'm denying it. No, I'm, I'm not I'm, saying that. I'm not saying that. I think the tendency is to deny it. Even though the theft is happening in front of our eyes, yeah, 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 yeah and the absolutely. oppression, and the and, and the oppression, there is a tendency to to, to deny that. What what you say about you know the theft and the plundering, that is undeniable. I mean, I'm, I, I will I will say that you know when I first started reading in Horden, there was a bit of me went, oh, oh, hi, now hang on, a, now wait a minute, now hang on a minute. I mean, it's not that bad. And and then I uh, and, and as I read it, I I was convinced by by quite a lot of it. As I say, there's bits that I'm kind of not quite so convinced. Well, I do think I do think it's just a really good bit of work to have. Bit of you know to have written and, and to have been and to make public and as you say it you know it is primarily about getting to with our own I, conditioning isn't I, it? I, I wouldn't have been able to to do that work and that research had I not been a working class academic had I come from a, a well-to-do background private school no way would I know that would I be able to figure that out so uh, yeah we've got that benefit but there's not that many working class professors around no, but there's a lot of working class people, and uh, that's the ones that apparently, I mean, not only, but that's certainly a big but you know, part of the demographic what, to convince. What, what most people reading Dune Horden or the pamphlets say to me is it's the light bulb moment. Yeah. It's a light yeah. bulb. It's shining a yeah. new light on the reality. What that's all want, I can hope it? to do. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's well, true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. When I did Dune Hodden, uh, it was discussed with different groups, including the Scottish Sovereignty Research Group, and they said, well, why don't you publish a smaller academic paper? So I did that, and, and then they said, well, it's still too, it's still too big, and 40 pages or so, still too complex. Why not do something simple? And that's why I did that. Uh, and that was produced yeah. by iScott magazine, Ken McDonnell, yeah. uh, who did a great job on it. And it's, it's, it's simple. And, you know, my vision would be, you know, if we could deliver that to 500,000 uh, addresses, mainly in the schemes of Scotland, people would understand it. I don't expect 
necessarily the well-to-do folk in Scotland to figure that out. But that's where the post-colonial theory tells you the bourgeoisie are the most pampered group in the colonial society. They didn't want to upset the apple cart. They're feared to change. Uh, they just want to keep the status quo, continuity. I, as far as I can see, it's the only document that explains Scotland's condition. You still have to get the truth out there to the people. Why they're oppressed, why they can't develop their country properly, why they can't develop their own language properly, why they, you know, you're actually, as I said, manufactured into something else. And this is why decolonization or independence is required for people to recover, to self-recover themselves, their own mm -hmm. language, their own way of doing things. And this is also about Scotland's way of doing things internationally and becoming part of the international community, which we are actually prevented from becoming at the moment. According to Westminster and Alistair Jack, we can't do anything internationally. <laughs> and, and that's part and parcel of their control over Scotland. Uh, I worked on many European projects and people thought Scotland was just a region of London, a region of England. <laughs> you know, that's just how it's portrayed globally. So the international awareness of Scotland is actually quite confused. You know, I'm sure you two have probably done this as well. You know, you're, you're in France, or, and I also did this in Quebec. And, you know, one of the first things I'd put into the convert, my side of the conversation was just with Echo says. And the minute, <laughs> and the minute, even in Quebec, the minute you say that, you just get a different, you, you do get a oh, genuinely yeah. different response. You do. They know perfectly fine that there's a difference between Scotland and, and, <laughs> and, and, and England. Anyway, maybe yeah. that's something we can carry on wrangling about another time. But listen, it's just been great talking to you. Really appreciate the fact that you've been prepared to come on and, 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 and do this. And, uh, We'll, we'll get it out as soon as possible and, and, and hopefully that makes a few other people more acquainted with, with, with yeah. your approach to that. Yeah. If people want to know where they can get this, is there somewhere they can get yeah, it? I can send you the link if you want. Yeah, okay, yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, do that. And it just comes up as a, it just comes up as a PDF. Yeah. Oh, we can put that in the notes and yeah. the podcast and yeah. if anybody no. wants to go and have a look. Yeah. But I think in terms of the, the theoretical and the, the research work that you've done, this has been yeah. a fascinating discussion just to, to get mm. some of the you know the benefit of that research. So yeah. thank you very much for, Thanks. for yes, thank you, Fiona, and thank you, Berlin. Mm -hmm. It was a fascinating discussion talking to her, wasn't it? He does clearly distinguish between constitutionally being a colony, which we're not, and yeah. psychologically yeah. or culturally or socially, which we might be. He does really deserve credit for having having put that work in. I mean, I've shifted my position on a bit. Just being able to kind of see a bit more clearly where yeah, background ways of thinking about stuff. And, you know, I went to school in the 50s and 60s. Did, did we ever get taught anything about Scottish history? No. You know, I do feel the benefit of having read it and, and chatted to Alf, even though I wouldn't go as, maybe as far as he does in his conclusions. But mm. there you go. Hopefully you've appreciated listening to this and download the PDF and have a look yourselves. And that's it for this week. So thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that and join us again next week for our next edition of the Scottish Independence Podcast. If you've missed any, you can catch up with all our stuff on our website, scottishindiepod.scot. Catch you later. Bye now.